think there's something serious to deconstruct here as we watch this Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is, that is the very idea of what is war, what is its purpose, and what is our purpose in preventing it? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. The, the, the question goes to things that we are not specifically involved in. I'm not discussing being bombed at Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. I'm discussing what we're watching in Ukraine. What exactly requires our involvement? The standard answer, or at least it would seem that our operating position over the course of 30, 40 years in in a post-martial plan world has some type of financial involvement, some type type of arms involvement, and certainly the idea of moral authority. Moral authority that we had that we held and maybe it was held through the idea of paying this one paying that one paying the other one buying friends maybe it was held by having the troops around the globe but that is something that people tired of and so we put less troops around the globe and we proactively discussed having less troops around the globe and having less activities and less actions and stop being the policeman of the world it was an untenable situation maybe it was Did that lead to Putin deciding now is the moment to invade Ukraine? Has that led to our conversation about how exactly do we deal with this? With some people asking, should we deal with it at all? Have we now seen that the policies of the progressives don't work? Are we forced into actually asking the question, do the policies of the neocons actually work? In the meantime, what are we arguing about? Labs. In Ukraine. I don't know how that's supposed to help us in this situation. Noah Rothman joins us right now. You can read his work over at NBC and, of course, his work at commentary.org. Uh, and, and Noah, I would say that you and I uh, differ politically, even though we, we, we both are, are on the political right. We differ politically in, 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 in a, both a presentation and, and in in certain levels of what what our job is as, as a nation, what our what our focus is. But I, before I get into this idea of what it is that a nation is supposed to do in these moments, our nation specifically, I want to get just a, a quick thought on this fight between, for example, Representative Tulsi Gabbard and Senator Mitt Romney about labs. Look, there are biomedical, uh, or bi- I should say, biological research labs in Ukraine. You have uh, Mitt Romney saying, that's a lie, and you're, you're engaged, you're being a traitorous by, by saying so. Why the hell are we having a lab conversation? We certainly shouldn't. Um, I can tell you that just the nature of my job has compelled me to do more reading about biomedical research in Ukraine than I particularly like to. And I have found it to be an utter waste of my time only because uh, Moscow introduced this narrative into the ecosystem well over two weeks into its invasion of Ukraine. And then a lot of people who have become very uncomfortable with the rhetorical position they've been put in because Russia has not provided any reasonable rationale for this invasion have subsequently fallen to form and adopted this post-action ad hoc rationale for an invasion that's already two weeks old. Um, And they're pretending it's the heart of the matter now when 
And I can tell you this because my job requires it, having listened to everything the Kremlin has been saying justifying this war, everything from the reamalgamation of the czarist empire, we're, we're observing you know, the tragedies of losing this territory that was gained from the Ottomans in the 1700s. Literally, that was something Vladimir Putin said. To half a dozen ideas about how Ukraine is an American fiction that doesn't really exist and would collapse at the slightest push on the edifice. This is just a new rationale for an already ongoing war. And the only people who are re repeating it uncritically are very uncomfortable by the position Russia has put them in without giving them a reasonable retro rationale for Russia's uh, war of conquest. And it is, it is a war of conquest. And I'm with you. My conversation over the, with the labs over the past couple of days is if there are biomedical uh, or I should say biological research labs, that's different than, let's say, a biological warfare <laughs> research uh, lab. There could be these pathogens that, of course, could do damage. But I'm not surprised they exist in any country. I don't know what I'm supposed to be talking about here. Of course it was a Russian in, in, in invention. It, it is Sun Tzu all over again. All warfare is, is deception. And this is how Vladimir Putin is built. And what it is taking away from is how we're supposed to be handling this, which really gets into this neocon versus populist versus what is American strength all about conversation. How is the United States, as you see it, based on your studies, supposed to be responding to something like this? How has it? And what is it doing today that you think is good or bad? Well, it's a good thing to define our terms in the way you did at the introduction, um, which I thought was very helpful because the, the, the term neoconservative is bandied about as a more, more or less an epithet, uh, pejorative nowadays, without actually understanding the, the definition of the word or its origins. Um, the political movement ar arose in the 1970s, and it was primarily liberals, disaffected liberals, uh, far left liberals, in fact, who um, had become very discomfited by their fellow progressives who were no longer advocating a kind of Jacksonian, um, Scoop Jackson, Jacksonian uh, idea of democratic engagement with the world, which was combating communism, containing communism, a social safety net, yes, uh, not a cradle-to-grave welfare state, uh, recognizing the enemies of America and, no, not, you know, and, and not uh, welcoming into the coalition people who are outright supporters of the Black Panthers or the Viet Cong. That's what created the neoconservative movement. And their advocacy when it comes to foreign policy centered around one particular policy, deterrence, deterring the Soviet Union, deterring China, deterring Iran from engaging in aggression abroad by being proactive, forward deployments, uh, a containment strategy and the like. You know, the intellectual uh, currents of the day maintained that a hard-nosed realist perspective would compel us to engage with the Soviet Union because it was just any other nation state. Um, it just had a different way of doing things. It wasn't an evil state. And to even say that, to even conceive of conceptions as uh, moral categories, as absolute and stark as good and evil, is just simply naive. I mean, this is the sort of thing that neoconservatives were combating. And they're Beliefs um, had a fair amount of substance to them established in the 1980s when we did apply a deterrent strategy, when we did confront the Soviet Union aggressively, seeking to maintain both numerical superiority in nuclear weapons and material superiority in delivery systems, and containing them and neutralizing their weapons with uh, idea, ideal platforms like a, uh, an SDI, for example, which the technology didn't exist at the time, although it certainly does now. Um, but there was a, you know, there's a great hue and cry I mean, up to 2010 when I was doing my graduate work on missile defense. It was still believed to be in the international community, a very destabilizing 
invention because you would compel Russia to launch first because you neutralize their second strike capability. This is the sort of thinking that pervades international relations theory. So when we talk about neoconservatism today, we rarely talk about what they actually believe. And what they actually believe is confronting threats before they manifest into something worse later Talk, on. Talking to Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine, commentary.org. Well, here is, is, is where it is seen, that, that neoconservatism is about being the policeman of the world. And as a nation, we have grown weary of being the policeman for not only the cost, but really asking what has it gotten us? Now, I think there is an argument to be made that having a presence in certain places has kept certain levels of peace and has allowed us certain levels of peace. But isn't there an argument to be made that maybe the the policy of 1983 is different than the policy we will need going into 2023? I mean, there's an argument to be made, sure. It's one that I would argue against. You know, when people talk about, oh, our, you know, we're, we, we have all these deployments abroad and everybody hates them. Uh, I don't hear anybody talking about, you know, we, we talk only about Afghanistan, which we no longer have. Um, I don't hear anybody in the Middle East where we have, you know, between 45 and uh, 65,000 soldiers. But you rarely heard anybody talking about Europe or Japan or South Korea or sub-Saharan Africa or the European con- or the American continent, rather. Um, American deployments are all over the place, and mostly they're there not just for training and advisory missions, although that is a very low-cost and high-value way for us to maintain global peace so that we don't have to engage in larger deployments that maybe have a combat operation associated with them. But also it's just a a means by which we can um, deter foreign adversaries because they act as a tripwire. The presence of an American troop in a particular battlefield uh, gives the makes a, a, an enemy that's inclined towards a risky venture maybe a little bit less inclined. That's the essence of deterrence theory. That's all it is, is just making the other guy blink because the consequences of doing something risky maybe outweigh the benefits of doing something risky. I, how does Afghanistan factor into this, for example? Does, did Russia invade Ukraine now, less than six months after America's humiliating and bloody re- retreat from Afghanistan, Did that have any effect on his thinking? We may never know. There's certainly no way to quantify it. But you can't say, and I don't think you can say, that Vladimir Putin looked around, saw the weakest iteration of the United States of America that he had ever seen in his entire life, and realized the window of opportunity was here and it wouldn't be here forever. Now that is something that that I agree with. But that is not so much a policy of America as it is a policy of Biden. And what I am finding is that more than ever, the changes of the presidency, of the, of the party in power, is changing the political calculus of other nations on a dime. You have to go back to Reagan taking over for Carter and the release of the hostages in Iran, I think in order to see a switch as blatant as what we have seen in the past year with not only Russia, but clearly China. And I do have a China question, but am, am I right about that? Right about... Sorry, the idea the that this... this they... We're not talking about the country. We're talking about political party. We're talking about who the actual uh, leader is as opposed to a nationwide stance. Yeah, I suppose you could make that case, um, and that's sort of an ideational, ideological case uh, for the kind of uh, policy changes that we're witnessing. Although I think you can't divorce them from the material, uh, just the hard, tangible realities of what we're talking about now. And a very 
crude sense, um, European security is so directly threatened that we've seen the overnight abolition of some European social covenants that I thought would be here forever. Swiss and Swedish neutrality, German pacifism, this sort of stuff was non-negotiable three weeks ago. It's now antiquated to the point of being delusional. Uh, that's, a, that's a sea change, and that's, that's purely tangible and material. There was no, no ideology overtook these countries overnight. They just got scared to death. So this brings us to the thing that I won't say scares me to death. I don't, I don't work like that, but rather I, I pay attention to and, and see the issue, and that is China. China, without a question, uh, as the expression would go, licking its chops, taking a look at Taiwan and saying, soon, my precious, soon. Uh, but there's been this conversation of Russia looking to China for military support uh, in their invasion of Ukraine, which is going poorly, but they're still bombing the Ukrainians and killing U- Ukrainians and, and, and taking land. It seems clear to me that part of the reason you see these bombing raids happening close to the Polish border is that they'd like to see NATO get involved because it would give Russia an excuse to get China involved and allow China to do so. That's how it at least plays out a- as I view this. Does China want a part in this? Is China really really willing to risk the the money it gets from the United States remember we are the trade partner and or, or is there something new at play that life without an american trade partner is quite all right and they're fine with it i don't think so no i don't think you're going to see china become materially involved by which i mean if reports are accurate and we don't even know if they're accurate but the reports suggest that russia's been uh, soliciting from beijing assistance not just uh, humanitarian assistance, financial assistance, but also um, military assistance in the form of munitions and even weapons platforms like drones. Uh, I don't think you're going to see China do that uh, for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are just purely tactical and not necessarily strategic. But yeah, I don't, I don't expect that you're going to see China engage uh, directly in this war because that would make them a, a direct competitor to NATO. It would be the, the first proxy war between the United States and China. Uh, in the European theater, and it would also you know, render uh, Russia wholly dependent on China. So, no, I don't think you're going to see that. And the other thing to, to think of here, and I've been saying this for many, many years, is that we've um, been devoting a little bit too much attention to China as a direct military competitor with the United States. They will be within our lifetime, but they are not there yet because they understand time is on their side. China is a rising power economically, militarily. They know it, and they know they have all the time in the world to shape the, uh, the events in their region toward their favor because they perceive the United States to be in decline. Um, although the calculation may be changing based on the West's response, unified and aggressive response to Russian action. Russia is different. Russia understands itself to be a declining power, which means it has a very narrow window of opportunity to secure its objectives in its region before that status closes in on it. And it's been acting very aggressively uh, and recklessly in the pursuit of those interests with the understanding that time is not on its side, uh, which is why they are, uh, have been and remain a far more near to urgent near-term threat than the one presented by China. Although China is the more um, existential threat from our perspective, it is not the near-term threat. Noah Rothman, commentary, magazinecommentary.org. Noah C. Rothman on the Twitter box. Always a pleasure, man. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz.